For years, there was only one road into Scarswell. And unless you count the open sea, there was only one road out, too. I remember many a trip with my dear old mother when we'd stop to stock up on egg sandwiches at the motorway service station. One of our listeners happens to be on the staff there. They wrote in to share this rather grisly story. You need to remix the sandwiches! Steve yells above the radio, and he dumps a big box full of them on my aluminium work surface. I should turn the volume down, but I won't. I know it's not good for my ears, but the ancient hi-fi propped up on a shelf at ear level, blaring out the prodigy, is about the only thing keeping me from ending it all. Remix the sandwiches? I yell back. With a sneer, Steve holds aloft one of the egg and bacon sandwiches I made this morning. You see how the egg has all dropped down and they look empty? He taps the cellophane. He's right. I want you to take them out and spread the egg about so they look all nice and full again. He mimes. Yeah, okay, it's just that this is all a bit weird. Can't I just make another one? Fuck off! He bawls. He has that Scarswell accent, and it grates against my psyche like an old brick against a bare set of knuckles. I often think it's halfway between Cockney and West Country, with none of the charm or earthiness of either. We're over budget as it is. You might not have a job next week. He shoves the box towards me, brazenly rearranges his genitals, crammed into too tight supermarket polyester. But get on with it. I wonder how one might ever attain such self-assurance and arrogance, all while being the manager of a failing motorway service station. I think about what he said about the budget. He and I both know he likes to make me and the other staff do humiliating things purely for his amusement. But last week a series of stern, grey-faced men in grey suits from corporate, including Scary Mike from regional, had disappeared one by one with him into the dusty, disused conference room at the back of the building. When they emerged, Steve's eyes were shining and his lavender shirt was patchy with sweat stains. There was an article in the paper about how we were voted the country's worst motorway services. I know things are bad, and I'm broke. I'm supposed to be going backpacking in Australia in a couple of months, and I need the cash. I sigh and put on a fresh pair of gloves. The clear cellophane on the sandwich wrapper bulges outwards. It's obviously been fermenting mildly in the heat. The puff of air when I open the whole thing back up immediately makes my nostrils pucker. I peel back the sodden brown slices that are already disintegrating at the edges, and use a begloved finger to smear the egg mayo paste evenly back across pre-cooked, brittle strips of bacon, wishing I'd tried harder at school so I could have worked in an air-conditioned office for my gap year. All the while, I try not to gag at the smell, which is awful. It's like doing an autopsy on a fart. I repeat this action on the remainder of the sandwiches, repackage the things and trapes out front. Justina, the pretty Polish server, gives me a wan smile. She's too good for this place, I think, as I plop the Franken-Sarnies back next to their rapidly wilting tuna brethren. 
It's the height of the season, but the place is dead. Even the school trip coaches don't stop here anymore. We sure as hell don't get any locals. There's no McDonald's or Burger King or KFC. Just a tired wimpy with unappetizing, faded pictures. I often think it must be the last one to exist in the world. We out of BLT, Justina says while she unnecessarily polishes something, staving off the boredom. Someone actually bought them. No, she says, and nods at the entrance where several children lean against a caravan and eat from our distinctive blue packages. They take. For a few weeks, there's been a family camped out in the car park. Every few days, they'd walk in, pretend to want to buy something, and then run back out with an armful of sandwiches. It's supposed to be a problem, but I don't mind. It breaks up the monotony. I nod at her, wonder if she's ever been with a woman, and disappear back into the dungeon of the kitchen, where Manuel probes the temperature of several worse-for-wear frozen hash browns and mutters to himself in Portuguese. I pull the giant pot of eggs off the stove. One hundred eggs to last the week. I test one by cutting it in half. A beautiful, sunny yellow yolk with no grey film to indicate overcookedness. Perfect. Mormis looking forward to the task of cooling and peeling them. I'll start with the dark ones first, and leave the light shells where my fingers are tired. Those babies just slip right off. But first, BLTs. Need cold bacon from the walk-in fridge, which is always perilously slippery. I often take my time when it's my turn to fetch something from the fridge. The thick walls provide a welcome barrier against the blue light and commotion of the kitchen. My fingers flutter down to my back pocket to check for my phone. I pull it out and decompress with a little time to myself, just like with the egg sandwiches, in the vaguely vegetal, soothing musk of the fridge. But that doesn't happen, because I notice a smell as soon as I pull open the door. It's not spoiled food or anything like that. But it's wrong, overpowering and grimly familiar. I close my eyes and try to place it, when my mind suddenly fills with the memory of some of my first, unsatisfying teenage sex in a messy bedroom. It smells like a teenage boy's bedroom. It's Lynx Africa. I feel my way along the metal racks to the bacon in the swampy, yellow light of the fridge, through the mist that materialises in the fridge on hot summer days, and I remember that Ben wears Lynx Africa. Ben is Road Cook's most depressing employee, which is saying something. His mother Vera is a sandwich maker, just like me, except that she's never going to do anything else with her life and she's oddly okay about it, which makes her the second most depressing employee. She's worked here since the 90s, if you can believe it. Now Ben's followed her into the family business, just like his older sister, dolloping baked beans and shoveling frozen chips and crispy chicken cutlets onto the trays of resigned lorry drivers and harried, divorced fathers, running late to drop their kids back off, five days a week, probably for the rest of his life. The changing, break and smoking room are all the same space, and Ben usually arrives when I take my lunch. It's the only time of the day I come close to anything resembling contentedness, but lately he's been making it impossible to enjoy. He's always sighed. The last few weeks he's sighed so much I can barely concentrate on what Jeremy Kyle is saying through the grainy, crackling television. After steadfastly ignoring him for weeks, 
I finally asked what was wrong yesterday. You wouldn't understand. No one does, he mumbled miserably. But I got these. He lifted his trainered foot and placed it on the table, uncomfortably close to my plate of chips. I tried to make an impressed noise. The new Yeezys. Three hundred quid, he said, like he was trying to convince himself of their worth. His eyes didn't match his smug smile. He looked pale and tired. Kanye West made them. Did he? They weren't cool. The colours were lurid and their shape reminded me of an electric shaver. Ben sighed again, sprayed himself liberally with the Lynx Africa that flew everywhere and settled on my chips, and sloped off down the hall, the new trainers squeaking, ostentatious and clashing with his navy uniform. I told myself I'd find him later and ask him more questions about his shoes, but when I went to find him, Justina said he'd cleared off home early. I hoped it wasn't because of me. I'm pretty sure it's his day off, but the smell is definitely him. Is he hiding somewhere in this eggy, insufficiently cold fridge to jump out and scare me? Seems unlikely. Lost in thought, I walk into something strange. Fabric brushes my face and I instinctively flap it away in a panic, but it just sort of swings before me, bumping me gently. I freeze. I take a step back, and when my eyes focus in the gloom, I see a pair of unmistakably ugly Yeezys swing back and forth, centimeters in front of my face. Without thinking, I squeeze his ankles in the manner I imagine one might when examining a racehorse. I know it's awful. It dawns on me that I might be breaking a law, desecrating a corpse, but I'm still hoping it's some horrible dream, and I'll wake up in my single bed, underneath my coverless duvet. But I don't. It's definitely a human leg, but he's cold and hard. He's obviously been here for a while. Somewhere above, shrouded by fridge fog, a pipe groans with the effort of supporting his weight. I look up through my fingers and can just make out the neon green lanyard with Ben's supervisor passkey, but look away before I can see what his poor face looks like. His ID, with its unflattering and overexposed picture, hangs from his belt loop, blowing slightly from the fan. It is so Ben. What the hell do I do? What if they think it's me? I hear Steve shout somewhere outside. I've got to remix the bloody sandwiches. In a daze, I grab the bacon, then turn on my heel and leave, sealing the whole mess behind me with the heavy door. My heart beats in my brain as I stumble through the kitchen and collide with Steve, steaming through en route to the front to do whatever it is that he does. My breasts press into his disgusting belly as it strains against the lavender. I am definitely going to vomit now. What's up with you? He sneers. You look like you've seen a ghost. Yes. You what? Ben's dead. I blurt. The sneer on Steve's face falters, slightly. You what? He says again, like an idiot. Ben's in the walk-in. He's... dangling. Dangling? He says, incredulous. He frog-marches me back to the fridge. Shakily, I prise open the door and turn my head away from this impromptu morgue. 
It takes a second for Steve to register the long, black-jeaned legs between the rows of lettuces and blueberries and tomatoes and cucumbers and pastries crammed against the walls. But when he does, he reels away from me and gags. Then he turns back and makes a noise somewhere between a yelp and a cough. And then he steps back outside and he closes the door. What the fuck are you doing? I hiss. Did you finish remixing the sandwiches? I stare at him. Look, he says, we're in enough trouble as it is. Let's just wait till the end of the day. Before I leave, I'll call all the necessaries and we'll sort this whole thing out. But shut up about it, will you? I'll take care of it. No one uses a fridge except you. And Vera? She's working the afternoon shift. She'll be here in a bit. Fucking hell. So keep her out of the fridge, yeah? You've got to be joking. I'm not, he says, then looks over my shoulder. Shit. I whip around. Vera's here early, for once. She flashes me one of her anemic smiles, which sends her multicoloured glasses riding up her nose, the kind older women wear to signal that they've yet to lose their quirkiness. I do not like Vera. She is full of gossip and anecdotes about her chronic illness that she forgets and then repeats. On cue, she raises her hand in a thumbs up. The thumb is almost curled, gnarled from the arthritis she's always banging on about. You heard from Ben, darling. He was supposed to call me last night. I can't do this. I turn back to Steve, and of course he's already retreated to the safety of his filthy, farty office. No. Maybe he went out? What are we missing? She says, breezily turning back to matters at hand. I'll go and check the fridge. No, I say hurriedly, clamping my damp hand around her wrist. Someone... someone spilled something. All right. He smiles, winks at me for some reason. I'm just going to have a chat with Justina. For one infuriating second, I wonder if this is all a prank and she's in on it. And then I remember something and I feel sick. In between the stories about her cats and how her arthritis affects the texture of her stool, I remember something she mentioned this week. Today is Vera's bloody birthday. I lean against the work surface, smear the heel of my hand into an errant blob of tuna mayo, and breathe shallow breaths. When I've gathered myself as much as I can, I sidle out to the counter. Mercifully, Vera is nowhere to be seen, just Justina applying a coat of lip gloss in the reflective chrome frame of the hot plate. Where's Vera? She went to her car to get something, she says, turning to me with a newly sticky smile. She's very excited about the cake. She says she hope is chocolate. I whimper. Are you okay? Before I can answer, Steve appears, looking considerably more flustered than he did when he'd happened upon the swinging corpse of his colleague of three years. Got a tip. Mike's coming for a surprise inspection, so I need you to get back in there, wipe down all the surfaces, move anything that shouldn't be there, and sort the fridge. Stop hanging around. He winces at himself and can't quite meet my eyes. And then he says, Oh no. Four coaches crammed with elderly people on the way to the cruise liners in Scarswell-on-Sea Harbour, are pulling into the vast, empty car park. Justina narrows her eyes, reapplies her lip gloss and flexes her arms, stealing herself. Steve swears loudly, 
before I can tell him to check the fridge himself, he's disappeared again. Justina smiles sympathetically and I turn away. If I smile back, I'll start crying. Nice. Very nice. Steve nods approvingly at the kitchen, which, thanks to Vera and me, is now contraband knife, crumb, and pornography free, much to Manuel's disappointment. Can I just grab you for a second? I say, nodding towards the fridge. Vera smiles to herself in a world of cake and balloons, and where her son is still alive. I steer Steve by his arm until we're out of earshot. What are we going to do? I ask, desperately. She thinks this bloody cake. Look, can this wait? I just saw Mike pull into the driveway and I've got to run out to Tesco. I'm nearly out of cheese. Steve delivers this line like a frontline military medic might say, we're nearly out of morphine. What are you talking about? There's loads in the fridge. Do you grab it for me? I... No. I'm calling the police. Just wait until Scary Mike leaves, yeah? I'll keep him out of the fridge, then I'll call the police and say I found him. Yeah? Yeah? Vera appears at my elbow. Steve and I jump. What are you lot chatting about then, eh? She asks. Is it about me by any chance? Never you mind, you naughty girl. Just stay away from the fridge, chortles Steve, artificially. The strain is finally starting to show. Vera does as she's told, giggling. Get her out of here, he mutters in my ear. I'll take care of Ben. Surprise! We stare at each other. Vera's smile stiffens the cars roar beneath us and nothing happens. I've dragged her out under the bridge that hangs over the motorway, right before the footpath stops. It's midday now and the sun is high and bright. I shuffle in my squeaky rubber work clogs and rack my brains for something to do to drag this out, so Steve can do whatever he's doing and takes care of Ben. The stiffened smile falters. Stales. I've got to stall. I can't let her see Ben. She's getting impatient. Don't know what you was going to do, but it's not happening, is it? It's too bloody warm out here anyway. I'm going to go and buy a cake and stand in the fridge. I panic and grab for her bag. There's a brief tussle, during which it occurs to me that several cars speed past, none of them thinking to intervene in what is obviously the brazen mugging of an older woman. I finally tear the beaded bag from her arms and send its contents arcing through the air. Lipsticks, a load of bank cards, and, mortifyingly, what looked like a handful of bulky incontinence pads fly out over the motorway and she stares on, in horror. She tries to say something, but it's drowned out by the din of swerving cars and distressed honks echoing from below. Surprise! I shout, in tears, and sprint away. My ankle twists. By the time I get back, the line of hungry pensioners has thinned, and Steve's hideous yellow Nissan is conspicuously absent from the car park. He's obviously lied to me. I decide I'm going to gather my things, go to the phone box, and report everything. Steve will probably fire me to make a point, so I have to retrieve the Prodigy CD that saved me from Ben's fate the whole year I've spent here, wasting my life. I can't believe it's been a year. I make it into the kitchen just as scary Mike does, 
and it's like the tea-time arrival of an abusive stepfather. A panicked hush falls over the kitchen, chatter dies out, and everyone focuses intensely on their menial tasks. I ran so hard from the overpass I can hardly stand from the stitch in my side, but I try to control my panting and pray that Mike will take a quick look, get the usual tikka masala and chips while he stares at Justina's chest, and fuck off home. Of course he doesn't. He marches straight up to me. Come here. I want to show you something. He beckons me to the fridge, and I brace myself. Don't look so bloody frightened, he says, fiddling with the latch. Steve told me you were going to take care of it. A puff of Lynx Africa mixed with something sour is released, and it's not the lemons we get in from Holland. Ben's getting deader. He's going off. I start to sweat. Mike marches in, unfazed, slipping slightly on the wet floor. He nudges Ben's ever-stiffening corpse out of the way impatiently, like he's a particularly inconveniently placed side of beef. What's wrong here? He demands, sternly. I part my lips to state the obvious, but before I can get the words out, Mike brandishes one of the sandwiches I made yesterday. I thought Steve told you to remix the sandwiches, he shouts over the roar of the fridge. I'm going home. Here at the Scarswell Tourists Information Office, we rely on our listeners. If you enjoy our stories, please consider supporting us on Patreon and find our newsletter, merch and more at scarswellonsea.com. We'll see you in two weeks. We're so very sorry. <laughs>